The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by Donna McKechnie. Now, with uh, Chorus Line back on Broadway, certainly mm-hmm. we think of the original Cassie, you, Donna McKechnie. But I should mention, long before a Chorus Line, you were in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, That's The right. Education of Hyman Kaplan, Promises, Promises, Company, On the Town. You were even the revival in on Revival. The town, right? not, not the original, <laughs> 19, 1944. <laughs> and you were even on television's Hullabaloo. So even, you have, yes, have quite, yes. a, quite a resume, quite a dossier. And now a chorus line is back. And certainly Cassie was a role to to really get involved with. Well, really it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It stands apart. <laughs> Let's start at the very beginning. You, when you were growing up, you saw a movie called The Red Shoes, mm-hmm. which was every little girl's dream back then to become a dancer. And, and you know that that it, it's a unique experience when you're seven. Uh-huh. And then when we did our tapes, when Michael ben- Bennett brought all of us together, uh, and then Kelly Bishops also saw The Red Shoes because we're of the same age, um, pretty much. Um, you realized how much in common, you know, that so many little girls saw The Red Shoes. Just as now, little girls come up to well, big girls come up to me <laughs> and say, "I saw you in the show," mm-hmm. you know, thirty years ago, and it started me. That's that's a high compliment. Yeah, so it, it gets passed on. So the Red Shoes, um, Mariah Shear, that gorgeous film was uh, totally inspiring. With with Moira Shearer. Yes. And, and of course, in that same era, Vaughn Monroe had that record Ballerina that inspired little girls right. to become a ballerina. So you were growing up in an age There's of There's also to be a Tina dancer. the Ballerina, too, for <laughs> children. <laughs> okay. But, you, but your parents didn't really want you to be in ballet at that time, I read. Well, it's not that they didn't want me. My father was, uh, th- they were struggling, and this was the 50s in the Midwest, and there was a recession, and he was in the tool and die industry. My mother was, of course, my champion. She used to see me dance around the living room when every time the radio was turned on, and, and music would play. I would just... I had this affinity um, for it, and so she really wanted to um, help those little girl dreams come true, so she got me to class, and it was always a, a bone of contention, I think, in our family. It was, it was a very difficult thing for me to keep pursuing that as I grew up. Yet you were really began at least trying to work at a very young age. Yes, You, you yes. really knew what you wanted. I, I did. I wanted to be a ballerina, but I, I studied. It was, it was all again. You know, it was considered dancing was considered a frivolous thing to do, and it cost money uh, for lessons. And so my mother was making costumes uh, for all the recitals. But in at the Cass Theater, it's no longer there in Detroit. There was an audition for um, what they call winter stock, and Jeanette McDonald was doing Bittersweet. She was at the end of her career, and uh, Betty White was doing um, The King and I, and um, Peggy Cass, remember Peggy Cass, mm-hmm. wonderful actress, was doing Bells Are Ringing. They needed one dancer from Detroit, and I actually went with uh, a friend of mine because I'd never seen an audition. And so you're how old now? I was 15, and I wanted to, you know, see what it was like. And, um, of course, I got very involved seeing everybody warm up, and and she said, here, here's my leotard, go, you know, go mm-hmm. try out. She had an extra leotard. I did, of course. I got the job, and wow. uh, it was my first. I got my equity card. 
So was that your first Even my father was uh, approving. He thought that was great. And, and that was your first time on a professional stage? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but your father's approval didn't last all that long because it wasn't terribly long after that you decided to run off to New York. Yes. I Well, I thought this was like, this was my big break. You see, the, the David Timar, the director, called me and said um, later after, you know, I was in my senior year, I just started, he said, um, you know... I, do you think your parents would let you come to New York to rehearse for f- four or five weeks and then do a six-week tour of the South and this, with this dance troupe? And I said, oh, sure. That, yeah, I'll ask them. And, and they said no. And then this was a big, uh, the, the major confrontation and very upsetting for my family because I couldn't accept no. Um, I was that crazy adolescent but also I, I, I it was out of character for me because I was raised to be very polite and you know a young lady but um, it, it felt like if I didn't take hold of this and really go for it that nothing would ever ha- happen in my entire life okay from a teenage point of view so it was uh, it, it devastated my family I ran away they brought me back um, and then finally I think it was never discussed that's what I call being raised in silence Things were never discussed. My my folks were very gentle people. Um, but I think a dance teacher said, oh, let her go. She'll come back. Well, did your parents have other plans for you, like becoming an English teacher or something? Was that no, what they, were they you know, my father, out of love, really, just as a father would for a daughter, just wanted to protect her, you know. And it was a world that they didn't understand. It was a world that they didn't appreciate. Um, it was too insecure. It was too frightening. Um, but I just wanted, that's all I wanted. And then I had to, I was fueled with the desire to not go back, to show them, you know, which has kept me going for many years, which isn't always the best way to fuel your desire. So you got off the bus in New York or whatever, and then what? How'd you get that first job? Well, I went on that tour. My, this dance te- I think it was my dance uh, teacher. She doesn't remember, uh, but it had to be somebody uh, that advised them. Um, and I went on this tour, and it, it just uh, it was fantastic uh, to be with these adults and uh, to, and to um, dance in in this troupe and audiences a different audience every night. We had a U-Haul at truck with our sets and our mm-hmm. costumes and. They would, and and know, what are you out touring in at this point? What are the, what this are the shows This is a dance on this tour? company, mm-hmm. and we had a, a baritone, David Cheney, and we did. I was like the the modern jazz ballet girl that I would fill in. There was a ballet couple, a jazz couple, a modern couple, and I was kind of the extra. It was a, it was fantastic, and got back to New York, no money, and uh, an, enough to get a hotel room and uh, audition, and that's. That's what happened. I just kept auditioning. Well, we're we're telling these stories about your early years, and we should say that this is a way of illuminating some of the same stories that you tell in your new book, Time Steps, which is out now. Not that John and I knew every step of the way of what you were doing as a little girl when you were five. Tell us about coming to New York at that time. We're now in the late 50s. This Um, is the late 50s. That you, you came to New York... How did you really find your way into the theater community? You'd done this one tour. You'd done this bit well, of winter I, stop. I was still bent on um, the ballet world, and I, I was able to get an audition, which was a week long, with uh, Lucia Chase of um, American Ballet Theater. Um, I had no idea that it was uh, 
that I was each day I would go in there would be fewer dancers that I got right down to the end they were going to Russia and she advised me she said I don't know you how could she um, I hadn't even studied there and she said um, I I think you're a lovely dancer I, I'd like you to study for a year and perhaps you'll go into the company next year now to any dancer hearing this this is a, gr- a great opportunities I mean to study at the school and go into the company um but in my distorted perceptions, I took it as a rejection, a total rejection, and I felt so defeated. It was such a struggle already, just the guilt of leaving my family that way. And um, it was, uh, I just thought I'll have to get a job, and, 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 um, and I couldn't it painfully go to a, it was too painful to go to a ballet for about five years, I'm, I'm sorry to say. I went to modern and jazz classes, so I thought I have to, um, you know, ballet dancers, as a defense, sometimes have a condescending attitude about the jazz world. <laughs> Unfortunately, a few of my friends and I did, you know. But it's really fear. And uh, I learned these new moves, these new techniques, these new steps and, and feels and dance and uh, just started working. West Side Story, I did a tour of that with Johnny Minio, who was now a, a you know wonderful, successful Fosse dancer. And I ended up... Um, about a year and a half later, I got my first Broadway show, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and there I was with Bob Fosse. But not originally. You were not cast by Fosse. Wasn't there another director? Hugh Lambert. Another Thank you for mentioning that. It's yeah. overlooked too much in our history, and uh, Hugh Lambert was uh, actually, well, no, Cy Fuhr ha- hired me, and I thought, oh, that's what ha- how it goes. You know, I, I did a motor... Cy Fuhr was the producer yes, of the show. Yes, thank you, yes. And um, he hired me f- for Motorama Industrial, a big... <laughs> Trade show, was it? A big, but very, you know, $2 million then was a lot of money. And, um, and so we did this wonderful... Um, uh, show in, in Los Angeles, and he said, I want you to do this uh, Broadway show I'm doing. I want you to be in this show called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and I went, oh, that's easy. You know, I thought that's how, how it happened all the time. <laughs> Little did I know how lucky I was there again. Um, so Hugh Lambert um, did these wonderful, you know, this wonderful number for us and got stuck along the way. I mean, this is when my eyes were open to the masters at hand in musical theater. They didn't waste time. Three days, and you, and you get stuck. He was gone. What was the number? Was it one that stayed in the show? It, it did stay in the show. Which song was it? Uh, this was the uh, uh, pirate dance. Uh-huh. It was quite you know wonderful number and. Um, and Bob Fosse, the generosity of his spirit showed to me then when he wouldn't have him taken off the the credits. You know, he he kept the credit, and then I think Fosse took another different kind of credit, Musical like staging, staging credit right. as opposed to choreography. You know, I, I, that was kind of wonderful. And, you know, Gwen Verdon was a great star then on Broadway, but she obviously was between something, so she was our dance captain, which, of mm-hmm. course, what she loved to do with Jack Cole. So I'm walking in, and there's, you know, one day Gwen Verdon is our dance captain. But you're in a situation with... An amazing choreographer in mm-hmm. Bob Fosse, certainly now better known than Hugh Lambert today. Yeah. But Fosse, we always think of as someone who wanted dancers who could do very certain things in a very certain way, and he inherited the entire company, including you. And, how and, and how and did no that pre-pro- go? And no pre-production work, you know what I mean? He's, he's so thorough, you know. 
Uh, so Gwen would say that, that they would go home and be jumping up and down in their bed, you know, choreographing for the next day because they were um, – talk about a professional ethic. They came in with their work prepared, unlike a lot of choreographers. I I learned later that would kind of – hum and haw and have dancers standing around. Fosse hated that. Also, yes, he inherited all these these people. And um, it was, but, you know, what he did appreciate is the uniqueness of all of us. And he created his chorus, his ensemble chorus, uh, in, in a u- unique way. I mean, saying, now, um, whether you have a name in the program or not, I want you to know where you're coming from every time you come on stage before a number, know where you've been, who you know at work at the, the World Wide Wicket Company. And we had to kind of do that acting, you know, you do an acting class where you, you do a biography of your character, um, hypothetical or otherwise. And uh, that was the first choreographer I worked with who really kind of put it all together with a with an acting point of view so that you really were unique even if you were doing the same steps as, some, as someone now, next to you. You were a teenager at this point. You were still in your teens, yeah. late mm-hmm. teens. Yeah. You were working with Bob Fosse, Gwen Verdon on Broadway, a big and Frank Lesser, Frank Lesser's Abe Burroughs. Were you even a little bit scared, intimidated, or were you just no, I was a like teenager? A little, I was I, just I, I like, uh, I was just take. oh yeah, I was that omnipotent, you know, teenager. I was a little intimidated. Um, I was shy, but I was so um, uh, impressed by, by learning from these masters. That's when I really did 180 degrees and said, forget about... Lucia Chase, this is what I want. And I thought even then um, I had um, enough of a brain to go, well, if I'm going to devote my life to this, then I should study acting and and singing because that's what it's going to take to do this. And what did you get from Fosse and Verdon? What sort of um, uh, inspiration, what sort of knowledge, what sort of guidance? To be a dancer and to tell a story. Uh even if you're doing, you know, in the background, to tell a story and to have that unique point of view was um, powerful. And to tell a story with a group of people, with with music and song and um, and the, the communication of all of that together to create that, that powerful synergy that you do with an, with an audience. Um, that was a, it was um, a university for me, but it was, it was, breathtaking every day I just wanted I, you know Frank Lesser would give me uh, vocal coaching when he I was the second understudy to Michelle Lee and Hedy, you know and Virginia Martin and uh, and seeing Michelle the other day we I reminded her of that you know this kid that used to follow her around and she wasn't that much older than I was <laughs> but it was a great great time but why do you think, given that early opportunity with Bob Fosse, you didn't become, to use a phrase you've already used today, why didn't you become a Fosse dancer? Well, I was a Fosse dancer, and then I realized that you, you can say no to Bob Fosse only so many times. And oh, I, well, tell us about yeah. that. Um, well, it, How many is, times? This is the silly part. Remember when I said I had a brain? Well, there's a part of me that <laughs> the brain wasn't working when he called me and he said, um, because choreographers like to have their their dancers. They feel they need that loyalty. They, they You work together so 
intimately on, on that level. So he called me, and like as he did many of his dancers, and said, I'm doing this new Frank Lesser musical called Pleasures and Palaces, and I would like you to do that. And I said, oh, thank you so much, but I don't want to be in the chorus anymore. <laughs> Bobby, I want to... I want to be a singer and actress. And he said, okay, good luck. So I auditioned for George Abbott for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, the national tour, and um, and got it. And that was set me on a whole other course. You and know, you got when I met to Stephen play Sondheim. Philia? Philia, yeah. yeah. So you, you had a major Had not role. a clue. I, I did a great audition because I, in spite of myself, but um, took the whole year actually to, to find that audition. Um, the comic reactions that I created at the audition, but um, but Bob Fosse called me yet again another time. I'm jumping to 1963, um, and and wouldn't give up on me. You know, called me again. I appreciated that. He said, "I'm doing another show called Sweet Charity, and I'd like you to be part of the ensemble." And I said, "No, no chorus. Sorry, Bobby. No chorus. No chorus." Mm. Of course, when I saw the show. There is no chorus. I mean, it's it. Each dancer in that show is. Uh, it's, of course, it's it's a it's for it was written for Gwen, but they're all you know triple threats and stars in their own right. I mean, it's the most wonderful um, ensemble piece. Well, they, they all have their own role, their own character. Right. Yes, and it show. it was fan- and everybody was just wonderful. And uh, so I I had to sit there and watch that. So I. I was determined, okay, so 25 years later, I get my chance to say yes or no again, and I said yes. De Fosse. Yeah. De Fosse. Wow. And it was 25 years later, and well, almost 25. And uh, so when he called, um, after I came back into the show at the Schubert, a chorus line, he um, wanted to do a national tour of Sweet Charity, and, and he called, and I actually thought that he was asking me to read for it, and I said, I got so excited, and... And I called my agent, and I said, guess what? You'll never guess what happened. Fosse called me, and he wants me to, to audition for Sweet Charity and the lead, you know. And he goes, no, he wasn't calling you to audition. <laughs> he called me already. He wants you to do it. So it's somewhere I keep missing the boat. <laughs> well, Fosse was one great choreographer oh, he worked yes. with. The other was Michael Bennett. Oh, Absolutely. And whom you would later marry, but that's yes. skipping ahead in the story. You and, and Michael Bennett met on Hullabaloo? Yes, right? yeah, yeah. You were both dancers. Oh, yeah. And it was a departure for us because we were both, as we got to know each other, we loved theater so much and musicals. And, of course, Michael always had dancers surrounding him because everybody knew Michael would do something important someday because he was a very serious young man about his work. And uh, a wonderful dancer, and I just uh, was now on my new course of of doing being a musical theater leading lady at some point in my life, and um, we had shared a lot of dreams and and um, dances. We were dance partners at one point and had a lot of fun and. Um, yeah. For our, our younger listeners who may not be aware of Hullabaloo, it was a very popular <laughs> television program in the late 60s. With right. Six girls in probably vinyl go-go boots dancing. Oh, with, yeah. We were cutting edge. <laughs> Courage. And you told and... me once that um, even then, Michael Bennett said, I want to be a choreographer. He knew what yes. he wanted to do. He was very determined. Oh, very. He always knew. And, you know, you could tell because everybody would always, like, hang around him, you know, because like, they, th- they thought, well, someday he'll hire me perhaps mm. but he he just had that aura about him did he 
Yeah, because he was already doing um, his agent, Jack Lenny, um, was already giving getting him um, these wonderful summer stock jobs, and Michael was already developing, you know, this wonderful reputation of kind of taking a new, you know, bringing great dances to these uh, summer stock shows. And then there's Vivian De La Hoya in Promises, Promises. Oh, yeah. How did you get that role? Well, actually, that was because these are things that happen out of town. Um, they had to cut a half an hour off the show. Um, David Merrick was the producer, actually hired me, and I was very impressed because I thought, finally, an actress, I'm, I have a singing role, and one of three secretaries, of course. Those secondary stories had to be cut, first to go. And uh, Michael really saved my, my job. I would have been, you know, with the pink slip also, but he... Uh, he needed a first-act finale. The audience wasn't taking to this realism that he thought they might. So he needed that show-stopping number, and he knew I was a dancer. He believed in me. And um, so he pulled me back from walking out the door and said, Here, you're, uh, you're going to do this dance number. And, then and they, I said, Great. And, then and it was wonderful. It, 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 uh, it was great for both of us. I mean, it was, it was his first... Um, made a hit uh, as a choreographer on Broadway, and 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 the new music, the new popular music of the '60s, Burt Bacharach, Hal David, all those innovative things like um, for for Phil Ramone, the engineer, the covered pit, the first computerized show, I believe. And so. that number they created was Turkey Lurkey. Time, yeah, which, yeah, which saved your job. Yeah, and saved Michael too. You know that opening, he needed it desperately a a, a number. Of course, he would have come up with it anyway, but. And it's fascinating looking at the cast list of all of the people who were in Promises, Promises to see that not only you, but Byork Lee and Byork, Carol, yeah. later Kelly Bishop, were both in that Absolutely. with you. And although those are all chorus line names, and also in there with you is Graciela Danielle, who yes. later became really a Fosse oh. dancer and then a, a director choreographer in her own right. That That's a hell of a company. It's wonderful, yeah. Yeah, that I mean that it, well that that Michael like Fozzie appreciated his the talent that he he respected talent he it it was um and he was able to get enough you know of, of these people together to to work with him time and time again and by York of course um over time years 31 years has carried the flame of a chorus line all over the world I mean I've done um I've done it in four countries in her in her companies, and it's it's a it's awesome what she's done. But at the time, certainly, even the inkling of chorus line, you you were really living those lives with some of the same oh, people yes, you share and, the stage yes, with. Yes, and Kelly Bishop was then you know had her sights on doing more than just being an ensemble. You know, she was an actress, always wanted to be. So all of us were kind of growing up in theater, mm-hmm. and well, Graziella was you know a fantastic dancer. And but always a true artist, you know her her developing properties as a director and choreographer, and you know she was always someone I thought would would be an artist, if not great, you know success, which she is. She would always be an artist. After Promises, Promises, two years after that, Company came along the Sondheim show, and you were in that as well. You played Kathy, right? Again, did the phone ring? Somebody said, "I want you to do the show," or how, how did that happen? Well, I think I was well. I actually went up to meet Harold Prince in his office, which was very intimidating. I'd never been up that high. 
um, in Rockefeller Center before. <laughs> and uh, he invited me in, and I was very nervous because it was uncomfortable being in an office. I thought, if I'm going to read, you know, you do that in Los Angeles, but in New York you want a stage, you want to get up there and feel the expansiveness. So I'm sitting there, and he's so nice. He's such a gentleman, and he's showing me the Boris Aronson set, this gorgeous set. He's talking to me about George Firth, putting all of these. He's talking to me in a way that I'm not—I wasn't used to. You know, someone sharing this, the, the important um, components of this groundbreaking musical. And I finally said, um, "Can I read now?" I was getting very nervous. And he said, "Oh, you've got the job." So it sounds like he's already he in got, his mind, yeah. Well, yeah, and I didn't know that, so I mean. <laughs> When am I going to get it? So because why um, else is he taking time to explain all this to you? Well, you know? he wanted to. Sh- he was so happy uh-huh. to put all of this together, and I and I, I, I it was finally I, I, uh, I was so excited. I didn't quite know how to react to it. I also think later on, I, I think I realized that. Um, he really wanted Michael Bennett to choreograph. Michael and I had already had that modicum of success on Broadway. And he, I think Michael was not quite convinced that it was a show for him because what do you do with people that that don't dance? He was, you know, a little insecure about that. So me, if I'm thrown in the mix, that might be a little more enticing. And it was. Company, obviously, was a landmark show. Mm -hmm. Was it, I mean, whenever we have people in to have these conversations, we're looking back and saying, my God, this is so groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Did you understand what company oh, was at the time? Absolutely. And I was starting to feel like a grown-up with other grown-ups because the material was grown-up material, very sophisticated for its time. Um, it was really the first adult-themed musical about contemporary relationships in New York City. It had that that... I mean, the set alone was a work of art and to have that that Sondheim's um, imagination and artistry and genius really you know the foam bomb 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 that cut that metallic sound and all and Jonathan Tunick writing the most incredible arrangements um, and Billy Byers and you know all those you know wonderful I mean it was just and there was Elaine Stritch, you know, and Barbara Berry, and and uh, Priscilla Lopez was my my uh, understudy mm. at that time, and that's when she met her husband, and now I know her grown children who are, you know, it's like this whole family grows, we all grow together. Um, but that was a, we uh, we all appreciated it. Uh, there were great actors, uh, George Coe, uh, John Cunningham. I'm going to leave somebody out. You've been in hits. It, it's certainly not that it was the first hit you were in. So you, but it really felt different. Well, this wasn't. We weren't sh- sure that it was a hit. I mean, I knew that it was important. I mean, we all had that sense of we were in one of the classiest shows ever done, um, and smart. I mean, it was and and beautiful. I mean, when the, when you think of the. the those songs, I never tire of listening to that score of that show. It's beautiful. The, the melodic, um, the romance in it, even though people say it's cold, or that was the um, first reaction. It kind of, you know, put people off. Not, not, you know, I mean, the critics. It kind of was not a, a big, they didn't rush with all of their um, 
with open arms, but it took time. Over time, Clive Barnes re-reviewed it and then gave it um, all the kudos it deserved. We're talking but about, a year later. talking about the music, and I'd like to play one of your songs, not one from the cast album, but from right. your own CD. The CD is called Inside the Music. And it's the the song that the well, three different trio, characters right. sing, so but you sing it, all three parts. Because it's my show, I I decided to do all three parts. <laughs> well, th- this this was a uh, a live show that you performed, and you did all three parts. Yes, right, on stage. right. And it's a little like not setup. easy. Yeah, <laughs> Let, let's listen to you setting up the song that you will then okay, sing. Okay, thanks. There's Donna McKechnie, of course, from her own CD, Inside the Music, You Could Drive a Person Crazy. That is one right. of the cutest songs. <laughs> it's adorable. One, so funny, so funny. And, um, you know, I think we drove uh, Bob Avian crazy when we rehearsed it because, you know, Michael said, you, you, you go, you know, put them through their paces. And we were trying so hard, as I wrote about in the book, um, to find the right level to do that fast tempo but to get all the words out because it's, you know, the hilarious writing. And... Um, we finally found it once when we were out of town, on, I think, in Boston. And we were just kind of marking it. You could drive us amazing. You know, three of us with three-part harmony. And and for, because we weren't so pushing it so hard and so fast and furious, um, Sondheim came running down the aisle and said, that's it. You know, I love that. But Sondheim, when he writes, does have a way of challenging performers, doesn't he? Especially when you're up on stage singing and dancing and moving around and getting out of breath to have to deliver a song like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's wonderful. He writes for singers, though. I mean, you know, it's... How can I say it? You you become a better singer when you sing his his uh, material. Um, because he doesn't write in a way that you can't breathe or get the phrase out. But you do have to breathe a lot. <laughs> now, I was saying before, when we look back in retrospect on shows, we, we think, oh, my God, how amazing... In looking at your next Broadway show, we look at a cast that is you, Phyllis Newman, and Bernadette Peters playing the female leads in a revival of On the Town. Right. And it had a very short run. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, um, I love that company. And uh, Ron Field was a great choreographer and did such marvelous work. But I think it it was hard for that show because he... I think as producer, director, and choreographer, it was it was a it was tough. Also, there was a strike at some. Uh, there was a difficult time financially, um, and they didn't have. If you don't have, and this is before when it when you didn't need you know millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, you, but still, if you didn't have that cushion financially to weather the difficult months in February or the weeks in February rather. Um, you know, and one of the most important things that I ever witnessed was when we were having a company meeting when be, just before the notice was to go up, and we were asked, we were told that all the writers were going to not take their um, royalty, and would the cast help us out too and not take their salary? And what about the musicians and the stagehands? Now you know that that. That is just, you don't even ask the Musician, the stage hands, not right? get paid. <laughs> and they all agreed. It made it made everyone just really tear up because that had never happened, probably never happened again. But people loved the show, and they were willing to do that to help it, but didn't help. 
But it's also interesting, the juxtaposition that in the space of a little over a year, you were in this groundbreaking show company, and then you were in a piece that at this point is already a couple of decades old and older style. Was going back and forth between those? Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I missed company. In fact, I went back into company. I went back um, in, I think I did, came back, went to London after that. Uh, on the town for me, I was this... This, this still this girl who had a certain um, success as a dancer, but I needed that role. That was the next step for me. And um, Ivy Smith, I thought, would be the perfect, you know, singing, dancing, acting role. Um, the next step, and it was. It was a good step, but you know, if the show doesn't run. The show doesn't run. Well, during all these years that we're talking about, from how to succeed to promise to promises, company and all that, this is kind of like an incubation period leading up to a chorus line. Because we can say all in ten years from how to succeed mm-hmm. right, through right. through on the town. And you were you were meeting people, you were becoming friends with people, you were hanging out with people, you were trading stories and all that. And there was this little show, this incubation period that mm-hmm. Michael Bennett in his mind was thinking, I want to do a show. And that eventually became Chorus Line. So how did this all Michael was happen? was really, you know, finding his way. He uh-huh. was going up, up, up. But it was always a struggle. It always is, you know. It's all relative. Um, but he now was doing Follies. He That was his... Um, after Company, um, he was offered co-direction. And after Follies, it was such a magnificent show. I remember being there opening night. Um, he knew that he had to have his own show. He had to be his own director. Um, Hal had helped him as much as he could. So he was now on this new quest, and I was still trying to find that role. So along the way, yes, we were kind of now forging. Um, and I was always happy to jump on his his wagon, you know. Uh, to He would talk about the seamless musical, and um, it's everything that I believed in in terms of theater. And... Um, he would would kind of um, titillate and say, you know, um, I've got to get you a show. I've got to get you a show. I've I, I just I've got to do this. And I said, Michael, get yourself a show. Get <laughs> you'll you'll get you'll I'll be fine. Just get a show, and then and then you can put me in it. I mean, we would joke like this, and uh, so there was always this this um, you know support, and and we had a mutual appreciation. So a chorus line was developed by Joe Papps public theater. Yes. And it was basically a bunch of dancers telling their stories. It's a very simple idea. Joe Papp, you learn along the way the, the, how, you know, Joe Papp gave Michael the opportunity, um, carte blanche, to do, to use his theater. That was incredible at the time. And we did two workshops. Michael's initial idea with uh, Tony Stevens and Michonne Peacock was to just tape these dancers, and he invited a group of dancers to talk about what it means to be a dancer in show business. So um, what does he do with these tapes? He just takes them to Joe Papp. He listens for, what, I don't know, 20, half an hour, um, and he says, okay, it's yours. He had a lot of respect for Michael, but he didn't respect the commercial theater. He was at odds with that. That's not what he was about down there, but it it was such a beautiful combination when I think about it. What a great opportunity. And I don't know how Michael could have done it another way. But tell us about more about those workshops. Were you in both the yes. first and the second? Yeah. What were you t- 
told the first time you went in? What what did Michael say he was doing in in recording these these conversations? Well, he said he he didn't know what it was going to be really. You know, let's just see what you know. This might be a book. Michael, let me just interject something. Michael um, loved the idea of dancers. He wanted to do a show about dancers. See, I knew that he wanted to do a show. He didn't want to raise people's hopes, or he didn't want to do that thing and, and make promises, because he didn't know how far it would go. But he was bent on doing a show. Um, there was also, psychologically, I think, a real desire for him to go back to that place where he was a happy um, chorus boy, where everything, all his dreams were... In, in his future, and a time when he he was feeling really um, not happy and pleased with his the responsibility that that you know all the questions that come a director's way and and the producing of it and all the business of it, he wanted to go back to the heart of the matter, and I think that's what he was reclaiming in doing this show for himself and for everybody because that's what he knew. And all those years in the chorus, you know, standing back and as dancers would stand in the wings going, I can fix that. Don't they know? Can't they say that that's the wrong light to use? <laughs> you know how people stand in the wings and and fix a show, especially when you're or out of town. Or sometimes out in the house. So right. They call the audience. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, but, this, so, so this, but he, he, the first workshop was transcribed from the tapes without music. I mean, it was uh, the courage, when I think of the courage he had to endure this, because this, this to, to many other people, this would have been like, oh, I think we made a big mistake here. Because we were all, uh, I remember at one point, we were all sitting in a semicircle, not standing on a line. There was no line. And we would a each... A chorus circle. A chorus half circle, yeah. <laughs> and we would sit, and each person, one after the other, boom, down the line, would talk about... Um, the horrible, you know, past or childhood that they endured. And, um, of course, everybody knows that their parts are going to be written from their own words. So now it becomes a competition of who had the worst childhood. So <laughs> you time, had it tough, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> right. So by the time you get to the middle of the line, you're going, oh, I don't think I can take this anymore. There was no relief. There was no... Um, oh, people were funny. We were laughing. But after a while, you know, there was no show. It was, we called it the Towering Inferno, you know, that movie where people right. were jumping to their deaths one after the other. Um, so it was gruesome. And, but when I think of what Michael was forming in his mind, I mean, to see how the potential and where he could take this, develop this, how he got to where he. So he brought in. Um, Marvin, the second wor workshop, Marvin Hamlish and Ed Kleban brought these two together. Um, and it was, you know, again, it, it, it you know, I had a, um, an evening with Marvin Hamlish the other night at, at um, a seminar for Marymount College. And he was filling me in and saying, telling me about what was going on with him and Michael in a way that I, you know, I wish I'd interviewed him for the book because it, it was pretty hilarious. But, uh, but in, in my book, I do talk about how, Michael, because he used to uh, tell me that he, he would 
take Marvin out to wine and dine him because he would he would say, what do you want to do? Just get all these Academy Awards? Don't you want to do art? And and he would just be screaming at him. And they, I think he was fired once um, and came back. And uh, it was a roller coaster ride. Um, but when we all first heard at the ballet, when Ed Kleban was standing at the piano with Marvin playing, it, you know, we all started crying, not just because we were tired, but because it was so beautiful. It was the heart of the piece. I knew then, I didn't know how far-reaching the show could be, but I knew that um, this was going to be a, an artistic success, and everybody felt so moved by that, and every song they wrote, every song after that. And then with all the devices that Michael created, b- bringing James Kirkwood, Kirkwood um to the production, uh, breaking up the goodbye twelve, goodbye thirteen. The montage sequence is is a work of art in itself. To jump, to bring all those lives interconnected, and so we didn't have to endure one after the other. It was fascinating to me. I was reminded when I saw the show again last week. For you as a performer, it's very interesting because, of course, now again in retrospect, we say Donna McKechnie, Tony Award winner lead actress but Cassie doesn't have a lot to do in the show for a good hour almost the first half it seemed oh you, you should there's well bits but she's, not but she's not going solo, through a lot <laughs> but not no but you're not no, you've she's, got a lot of other piece stories right. getting told was that well, that's why in the beginning I, I I even love that where you know she comes forward and and says can I talk to you come on you know, mm-hmm. and he goes, no, later. So it's kind of there, you know, it's kind of lingering, this unresolved um, meeting. But then you get mm-hmm. the great opportunity to right. have, hold the stage yourself. And this, you know, misconception, you know, she's not, you, you read, because the perception, everyone, that's a part that I received so many letters that the metaphor was amazing to me. You know how older men who were fired from their job, you know, in their sixties, and they would, were devastated, and they would see Cassie and identify with that that role. And uh, I would get a letter saying, "Thank you. It inspired me to start a second business." Hmm. You know, I mean, just things like that, or, or you know, a family who was. I mean, I, I, it goes on and on and on. Um, but the Miss, Pers- I think that she wasn't an over the hill dancer. She wasn't trying to get back into the chorus. It's a, it's an interesting thing. She just wanted a chance to start over. It wasn't like you know. Some people would ask me, well, did, why would she want to go into the chorus? You know, because I never would. I wouldn't. You know, I kept saying no to Bob Fosse all those years. <laughs> but she just was. And this is why I loved it that it re- reached pe- was reaching people who were not in the business. Um, she was asking for a second chance. From there, she would go on and on and on and on. But so, well, How- Howard alluded a moment ago to Cassie finally, after an hour or so, getting her chance to yes. tell her story. And Cassie's big song, of course, is "The Music in the Mirror." Right. How, how, how was that song created? I, I, I want to play it, but give us the backstory on how that was Well, it wasn't always the music in the mirror. It it used to be Inside the Music, which is the title for my show that I do, because 
it's a fantastic, I built the whole show around it. It was a beautiful number. It was very ambitious. Michael's efforts to make me a star were so inherent in this, and it was so ambitious and impossible to sing a high C at the end going into a dance. So it was almost um, ludicrous, you know. Um, and he couldn't find a way to make it a dance number. So Marvin and Ed went again um, and rewrote or wrote a new song, and it was absolutely, it fit like a glove, and Michael loved it, and he could find the reason to dance. Donna McKechnie as Cassie from the original 1975 production of A Chorus Line, now back on Broadway. Right, right. This role became your life on and off for the better part of the next roughly 14 years, by, by my reckoning. For, 14 years? That you continued to play it on and off oh, in no, different productions. No. Not that long? No. Oh, no. I, I mean, yeah. I left the show pretty early, yeah. actually, in 77. Mm-hmm. And then I came back in 86. Right. And again, as you and said, you've done it in different countries yes, at different times. Yes, I did. I went on a tour in 85. Where, when That's when Joe Papp knew that I was dancing again after the uh, unfortunate um, circumstances of rheumatoid arthritis and finding my way out of that horrible experience. Um so when he knew I was dancing again, he invited me back, and therefore Bob Fosse and Sweet Charity and by York Lee is my angel on earth to um, enable me to be able to do Cassie in Tokyo for the first English-speaking company in Japan and also in, in Paris. And um, they loved it. Everywhere you take this show, it's, it's just wonderful to see the, how the response but what was it like that experience you, you the specifically of going back into the Broadway show almost 10 years later after you yeah, left not, it yeah 9 years later yeah revisiting not well, only you know, this the is, role but the part of your yeah. life that helped inform that role yes it 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 was coming back to the same production i don't think it had ever been done but it was a different cast i was now a, a more um grown up person i'd gone through a lot um, I was analyzed. I had a better... I was happier. I was whole. I wasn't the fragmented Cassie that I was in 1975. And it was a great joy because I thought, how sad to leave the show in 77 under such unhappy circumstances. You want to look back on one of the, one of the greatest experiences of your life and, and know that you had a great time. There was a lot of joy. So I was able to relive it. Uh, I was given this chance in 1986, and it was a joyful, you know, I could leave what I call the uh, character in the Cassie in the dressing room, and I could go out and have dinner with friends. And um, it was a great experience um, to revisit that show in a personal way. And it was a personal victory. And from that point on, when I was, I felt that I could be brave enough to talk about the story, the condition, and of rheumatoid arthritis and, and, the, and how I found a way out of it. I knew that then that I had to write a book. So this is two publishers, four writers later. This is 20 years I've been wanting to do this. So it's a very, I'm very um, so grateful that the right people came together and I was able to finish it and release it because I, I, I hope it helps a lot of people. 
Well, in this case, the publisher is Simon and Schuster. The writer is Greg Lawrence and yourself. Yes, you get mm-hmm. top billing above above the market. Oh yeah, it's my uh, writing. Yeah. He he was he was right there, you know, giving me the chapters. Right, right. But I I must say I. He was pointing you in the right And every direction. time I wanted to stop and say, I can't do this anymore, he would say, yes, you can. <laughs> the book is called Time Steps, My Musical Comedy Life, Donna McKechnie. It's an interesting season for you with the book having just come out, but also, and I assume the timing is not entirely accidental, chorus line back on Broadway. Oh, they rushed me to get this out. <laughs> there was a deadline. As well yes. as company coming back to I Broadway. Know. What, My what life is, is flashing like before me. What is it like to be able to walk in a couple of blocks and go see work which you helped to create? It's very, it's thrilling. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, this is the way it should be. I mean, I'm not one of those people that, that says, don't, don't revive anymore. We've enough already. I, I think these great shows should be revived and, and, and with different casts and with different directors and, and new takes, all of it. It's, it's great material. And on that note... Donna, I would uh, advise people buy the book and find out the rest of Donna's story. It's all yes. in these hun- couple hundred pages. Time Steps, My Musical Comedy Life by Donna McEachney. Yeah, there's our more. Guest, <laughs> our, oh, there's more to come. Our guest today on Downstage Center. Thanks, Donna. My pleasure. Bye. Thanks, Donna. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>